Lebanon, a small mountainous country on the shores of the Mediterranean. Nestled in the centre of the Fertile Crescent and home to some of the longest permanently inhabited cities on Earth. The country is once more grappling with a complex and multifaceted crisis, making international headlines with skyrocketing inflation and UN reports claiming that over 80% of the population has fallen into poverty. Some say that Lebanon is at the brink of another civil war. So the situation, you have no, no electricity, no water, uh, no education, no healthcare. So it's a total breakdown of, of the state because now we have void, don't have a president, we don't have a prime minister, we don't have a government, yeah. Demonstrations, assassinations, a complete lack of basic infrastructure and cholera outbreaks are but a few of the dire conditions that millions in Lebanon have become accustomed to in recent years. It's a very difficult situation and it's a, it's a tragic for a lot of people in Lebanon, particularly the generation of my parents and others, you know, who, who suffered so much during the war and worked so hard. And when it came for them to retire, they find themselves frozen in time. Time is running out because, you know, I mean, the schools have closed. The hospital are not working. We don't know how much the central bank has money. The central bank is like Alibaba's cave. We don't know what's inside it. You know, in, in June, the central bank head will be out. So then what? Then what? Many blame the current crisis, as well as Lebanon's difficult history, on the long-standing corrupt government and its ruling elites. Interestingly, in last year's elections, 13 members of opposition and anti-establishment parties were elected to parliament. This was an unprecedented result for Lebanon. These independent parties had risen from the flames of anti-government protests seen during the last decade. They were a source of political excitement and were seen as an opportunity for reform and a symbol of hope in Lebanese politics. As a student of Arabic and international relations with a personal interest in Lebanon, I followed these developments and was eager to find out what would come of these new parties. What would they achieve in Lebanon? I looked for academic work and political activity published after the elections. But to my surprise, radio silence on all fronts. Where had all the noise and excitement gone? What was the latest with these non-sectarian parties? who were considered by many as Lebanon's political future. What does Lebanon's political future look like? In this podcast, I speak with Lebanese academics, researchers, political scientists, and also members of the Lebanese public, in order to try and find some answers to my questions. My name is Griffith Martin, and this is Lebanon in Limbo. To understand why these new anti-establishment and non-sectarian parties came to exist, I had to build a picture of Lebanon's political history since the end of the civil war in 1990. I had the pleasure of speaking with Basil Salouh, a specialist on Lebanon's political economy. My name is Basil Salouh. Uh, I'm a political scientist by training, and I studied in Canada. I did my master's PhD at McGill, and then I came back to the region, uh, first to uh, UAE, where I taught briefly, and then 
to Lebanon, uh, my, my own country. I'm a product of the civil war. I, I lived through all of the civil war, except the last two years. And I, I've been a political scientist based in Lebanon from 2006 up until uh, August 2021, when I decided that given the massive collapse in the country, uh, to leave. Um, I, I study uh, power sharing in Lebanon, uh, sectarianism. I also have done work on Middle East international relations. We discussed the development of Lebanese politics over the last few decades. Yeah, well, look, I mean, we, we were talking about my interests. I mean, growing up uh, in civil war Lebanon, and then deciding to specialize in political science, you know, when you grow up in Lebanon, politics is all around you. And the questions that really you end up going to are issues like, you know, the durability of sectarianism. Uh, why is the system so, so powerful? And why recurrent attempts uh, at desectarianization or to challenge the system uh, fail? Some trace the sectarian influence on Lebanon's political structures seen today back to the era of Mount Lebanon under the Ottoman Empire. More recently, in the latter half of the 20th century, the intersectarian fight for power led to the 1975 Lebanese Civil War. The Ta'if Peace Agreement, which brought the war to an end in 1990, is the basis for Lebanon's current political structure. Academics like Basel view the agreement as the root of many of the country's problems. Those who control parliament and control the sinews of the state and the public sector are, by and large, militias that, uh, you know, decided to exchange their military uniform for a civilian uniform, but to take over the state as institutions and as political economy. This structure of political power sharing based on the Ta'if Agreement, is formed by government representatives from the numerous religious sects present in Lebanon. Scholars believe that this political system has failed in its aim of ensuring a fair and representative government for the people of Lebanon. Instead, it has allowed for sectarian leaders to maintain their power and influence for their own political and financial benefit. Lebanon is not... A democracy in Lebanon is a multi-dictatorial country where each zaim or sectarian leader he's like the head and he controls his his sect and he's the head of his sect. That was Dania Khatib, a researcher working on Lebanon and Syria, and a columnist for Arab News. Political tensions and foreign intervention, namely from Syria, Israel, and the U.S., remained high at the end of the last century and assassinations of high-profile individuals became commonplace. Anyone who dared challenge the status quo was targeted. These culminated in the assassination of the Lebanese Prime Minister, Rafiq Hariri, in February 2005. This important event shook the nation, and was the spark which ignited one of the most important protest movements in Lebanon, the 2005 Cedar Revolutions. This was the first in a string of nationwide protests, which in turn led to the formation of the anti-establishment parties, which are the subject of my research. After the Cedar Revolutions, Lebanon continued 
along a path of political and social unrest. Assassinations and attacks on public figures continued, including on those investigating the assassination of the Prime Minister. I spoke with Mona, a Lebanese international student here at the University of Leeds. She grew up in Lebanon during this period. In the interview, to my surprise, Mona told me about her father. He was a colonel in the Lebanese army, investigating Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri's assassination. And for this reason, he himself was a victim of a car bomb attack. Someone was going to assassinate him because he was, um, uh, he was a leader on the case of who killed the Prime Minister and he was really close to the truth. So they um, put a bomb in his car, but because he took the wrong car, he was only like injured, but like most of his like um, security guards and like friends died. Though her father narrowly escaped with his life, Mona and her family had to flee the country for their safety. To this day, nobody has been charged for the Prime Minister's assassination, nor for the attempted assassination of Mona's father. After 2005, widespread and increasingly organised protests happened periodically in Lebanon. These include the 2015 U Stink protests and opposition movements during the 2016 municipal elections in Beirut and also during the 2018 parliamentary elections. However, these movements were largely unsuccessful and failed to bring about any real change. The government repeatedly regained control and maintained its power and dominance in Lebanon. Then, in October 2019, fueled by tensions surrounding worsening socio-economic conditions and widespread political dissatisfaction, a protest movement like none other seen before erupted in Lebanon. I spoke with Mede Madah, a Lebanese researcher now based in Germany. So my name is Mede Madah. I am a PhD candidate at the Department of Politics and Public Administration in Constance. I'm also a non-resident global fellow at Brown University's um, Human, um, Human Rights Studies Center. I asked her about the 2019 protests and how they differed from previous rounds of protest in Lebanon. Which reminds me when the protests started, many, um, especially in colloquial Arabic, they started calling it, well, it's a revolution, it's the revolution, don't call it a protest movement, don't call it Hirak. What makes it special is that you have people, everyday people, being engaged in political um, conversations, but also that they want to see more organized um, units of people that really represent them and represent their interests. This so-called revolution unified the Lebanese people in a way not seen in decades. People put sectarian, class and regional divisions aside and poured into the streets. They called for the resignation of the government and for major reforms. Academics and political commentators alike noticed an important change in these protests. For the first time, people were forming organised political groups. They were calling for a secular, truly democratic state. New opposition and anti-establishment parties were being formed, such as Mintishreen. Some existing non-sectarian parties grew exponentially, such as Lihaqi and Citizens in a State. I wanted to learn more about these parties, and this new form of political organization. This is what Mere had to say. There was a um, almost of a euphoric feeling that many of those parties that started from a grassroots initiative and they have nothing to do with the establishment and, as you said, they're completely anti-establishment in their mandate. I was also lucky enough to speak with Ibrahim Halawi, a Lebanese researcher 
and a previous member and UK representative of Citizens in a State. Um, I'm Ibrahim Halawi. I'm a lecturer in international relations at the Department of Politics, International Relations and Philosophy at Royal Holloway, University of London. Um, and I would say that I'm still very much interested in and active in uh, Lebanese politics. I spoke with him about the emergence of citizens in a state as an anti-establishment political party in Lebanon. And so Citizens in the State is one of these parties that emerged in that instant. However, the, the focus of the party has always been not on just opposing or protesting, but instead on preempting the fiscal and financial crisis that has eventually sort of imploded uh, in 2019. Um, so it's a party with one specific objective, which is to preempt the crisis and turn it into a political opportunity for political change, for radical political transformation. These parties were considered as viable options for the future of Lebanese politics. They were an escape route from the crises facing Lebanese society. They were exciting and a symbol of hope. Fast forward to May 2022, the long-awaited parliamentary elections, a chance for people to express their dissatisfaction with the current system and to vote for these popular non-sectarian parties who were fighting for justice and equality. The results come in and 13 members of parliament from these new parties are elected. A huge increase from the previous elections, but too few to have any real impact on the running of the state. It's at this point that my research began. The most recent published work at that time was by Dania Khatib, who you've heard already. She interviewed members of these political parties in January 2022, during the run-up to the May elections but I needed a more updated picture of political developments in Lebanon and an understanding of what happened after the elections. Through my research interviews, I learned a lot about the election results and their significance. For some, like Mere, the elections were a breakthrough, a sign of real change. Is it going to swing the pendulum kind of into their favour? Absolutely not. That's, that's just kind of the realistic take of things. But still, at least you would have an opposing voice that is looking at the other side of things um, very differently from how establishment parties do. They still created a momentum. They still garnered a lot of attention. For others, like Basil Salouk and Dania Khatib, contrary to expectations based on pre-election polling, the way the elections played out was a failure. Take, for example, you mentioned uh, citizens in a state. I mean, I mean, you know, citizens in a state, uh, when they started organizing, they, they presented a very advanced discourse and a lot of people joined in 2019 and after. But the way they handled the elections uh, meant that they could not, you know, they, they, they didn't win a single seat. More importantly, when you look at the total number of votes they got, it's insignificant, really. While 90% don't want them, 90% elected them. So you would say, why did this happen? I needed to understand why these new parties failed to gain more seats in Parliament to reflect the popular opinion at the time. So I went back to the 2019 protests and the subsequent developments. I'll return now to Basil Salouk. So after the first five days or week, it became obvious in the case of the 2019 protests that there is a resistance to this idea of organisation. There is a resistance to the idea that, okay, now we have all these people in the streets, then what? Huh? 
the old Leninist question, what's to be done? Uh, uh, how can we create some kind of organization, some kind of leadership that would organize all these people? And again, this is not unique to Lebanon. This is very common to all of those groups that thought that an anti-hierarchical kind of organizing is the best way to challenge uh, the system by refusing to organize. Those groups who thought that the, the, the sectarian system was now uh, very weak had missed an opportunity to use the protest in order to organize and to create a sustained uh, challenge to the system. And it also allowed the political sectarian elite, the sectarian parties who are very well organized and whose parties uh, have deep uh, networks in society that, that go back to uh, the war years uh, to uh, take a step back and then uh, attack again and co-opt, uh, uh, visit violence against the demonstrators and weaponize sectarianism to mobilize their own uh, constituencies. Mona, who took part in the 2019 protests, describes a similar narrative. But then um, after like a week, like less people started going because, you know, like nothing really happened. And then those like supporters of Hezbollah, they used to go down and like shoot in the sky. Like sometimes like it would injure someone. So less people started going because it was dangerous. Basel took away these lessons from the new party's failure in the May elections. There is no uh, substitute for real political organization. And the lesson was, uh, and I think this, this has comparative resonance, that uh, not every WhatsApp group can claim to be a party and not every WhatsApp group can claim to be engaged in a political act simply by taking to the streets and uh, demonstrating and so on. Soon after the protests, the socioeconomic environment in Lebanon took a turn for the worse, and the COVID pandemic was also in full swing. All my interviewees believed that these developments hindered the ability of the new parties to gain political traction. Take, for example, Mary and Basel's views. But also, if you look at the same time what was going on there, it was the beginning of the financial crisis. You still need to put food on the table, and you still need to make sure that you have enough um, money to get your everyday medication if you can have it. But the tragedy also is compounded by the fact that for a lot of people, the, the post-2019 period has proven to be a bonanza. Then, to make the situation worse again, on August 4th, 2020, disaster struck the port of Beirut. The huge explosion caused by mismanagement of state-owned chemical storage tanks in Beirut, killed hundreds and made over 300,000 people homeless, devastating large parts of the capital's infrastructure and buildings. This tragic event had a huge impact on the anti-establishment movement in Lebanon. As Mere told me, The thing that broke the camel's back was the Beirut explosion. It was just something that was, um, that was, that it was out of this world, catastrophic in every word. So that was kind of the the end of it, um, almost for for many people for many people to take the decision and immigrate if they have the privilege to do so. This is Ali, who runs one of Lebanon's only surf schools 
and is a pioneer in his community, taking a Lebanese surfer to international competitions for the first time in history. He spoke to me about his experience of living in Lebanon during this period. You know, for the first year and a half of like two, like the revolution 2019 till the explosion, August 4th explosion, um, it was kind of like, you know, brick after brick and the, the house crumbled type of thing. This brings us to the run-up of the May elections. With those party members still living in Lebanon, facing great difficulties in securing votes for the upcoming elections. A viewpoint shared by all of my interviewees was that there was a lack of consensus among these new non-sectarian parties. They also saw the elections renew the regime's legitimacy, at least performatively, vis-à-vis the international community. Mary explained this further. And they weren't able to agree on those differences and the sectarian or establishment parties, they took that, I mean, it was a law, it was a... Um, low-hanging fruit, as they say, for them, because they were already against them. And then when you see those seeds of different differences kind of being harbored among them, it was kind of a winning ticket for the establishment party. So that was in their favor. Dania also saw these new parties as lacking in experience. The new parties that are coming, they don't have a track. I said they don't have track record. People don't know them. However, Ibrahim Halawi saw it differently. I don't see the effect of parties relating to the to the length of their experience. It's not really a linear process in which a party after 10 years becomes effective. It's really about politics is really it's about leaps and it's not linear. So it's a specific opportunity can arise in which a political party, even if it's young, can have a drastic impact on on politics. So I, I think that's where the problem lies in, in the sense that these candidates, when they ran for elections, they did so without a bigger strategy. They, they did present it to the people as the end goal in and of itself, as the source of change. And then traditional sectarian parties, of course, capitalized on that and abused that idea. And they allowed people to blow off steam, giving people a sense of hope uh, that is false. Almost a year after the elections, I was looking for an updated view on Lebanese politics. To this day, no government has been formed and the economy continues to freefall. After being through so much, what are people's current political attitudes? What's happened to these hopeful parties since the elections? As it turns out, parties such as Mintishreen, Lehaqi and Citizens in a State have all but disappeared. Those party members who could fled the country. Those who remained failed to overcome their differences or recognise their failings. And as the country spiralled into further economic and social devastation, People's lives have been reduced to merely surviving to the next day. My guests on this podcast spoke of general disappointment, demoralisation and political apathy among the Lebanese population. This is reflected by Ali's opinion on politics in Lebanon. Yeah, and then 2019 happened with the revolution and and that kind of was like the start of the downfall to everything as we know it in the country. Uh, whether it's financial, whether it's the banking system, whether it's your day-to-day life. Um, Politics in the country, they're still the same. Nothing has changed over the past 30, 40 years, I guess. Politics is like the devil in a suit. That's how I look at it. You know, it's all money, it's all glory, it's all idols. Dania Khatib describes the current situation like this. And the problem in Lebanon, it's always been the case where it's a deadlock, 
or there is a deal where each party takes a piece of the cake, yeah? So now there is no cake for anyone to divide. So the situation, you have no, no electricity, no water, uh, no education, no healthcare. So it's a total breakdown of, of the state. And this will lead people who will feel if they're cornered, they will held arms. So now it's the reforms is the issue of national security and preservation of the entity. I was interested in finding out what these Lebanese citizens, academics and researchers thought of Lebanon's future. What do they think might happen next? But because if there is no settlement, we'll have an internal confrontation. And by the way, the way wars happen, you know, especially civil wars, it's not like a group will announce war on the other group. What we'll have is chaos. People will carry arms because they're threatened. So these people are dragged into a war more than really planning to go into a civil war. It's reforms or the end of of the country, yeah? There is no third option. To avoid another civil war and the end of Lebanon as we know it, Dania is advocating for the appointment of the head of the Lebanese army as an interim president. She believes that a technocratic government is needed urgently to provide basic services to the population. However, both Basel Salouk and Ibrahim Halawi disagree with bringing in the military, believing that the army's rule would unlikely lead to any meaningful civic transition. Uh, and so that's a very dangerous suggestion to make on the long term. In the midst of international sanctions and conditions placed on the Lebanese government by the IMF for financial support packages, I asked my interviewees what role they thought international pressure would play on future developments in Lebanon. Understandably, they were all rather sceptical. Now, I know in Lebanon, uh, and this is what we've learned since the protest, is that uh, a lot of people think that the only solution is for foreign pressure using, you know, the carrot of financial aid, the stick of reforms that would be uh, implemented by a kind of a meritocratic meritocratic government. I, I think the vision there was that this country is collapsing only IMF and World Bank help and the help of the international community uh, can save us. Let's use them to torpedo the political economic class. I think what happened is that the the political economic elite decided to torpedo the country and society rather than to give up the fight. Ibrahim views discussions surrounding international aid as naive and lacking vision for radical change. It's a, it's a dead cow, <laughs> and they're trying to milk something that's not there. So I think, yes, international pressure matters, but the question is to what end? And, and as, as long as the end is simple questions of reform or allow, allow the IMF in, we're not really talking about the bigger radical transformation that needs to happen for this country to sustain itself. He also shared his vision of Lebanon's future. Yeah, I think, I think we are in a phase in which mainstream political party um, is not going to have a defining role. I think we are in a phase that is very desperate and meaningful change can only start um, through volcanic outburst of specific segments of society that are otherwise invisible to these middle-class political parties. And this volcanic outburst can and probably and will have violent forms um, that are destructive and even self-destructive. The so- social order that seems to perpetuate the system has to implode from within and often in very tragic ways. 
for, for that political opportunity to arise again. Ibrahim spoke with me about the need to recognise patterns seen in Lebanese politics within a wider context, calling for further study and exploration of themes discussed in today's podcast. I just think it's important not to exceptionalise Lebanon despite its peculiarities. A lot of these challenges, political and otherwise, that we're talking about are also very much comparatively relevant to other countries in the global south that are seeing the state withdrawing and, and just fading and failing. I asked the others about the possibility of some form of popular uprising in Lebanon. In response, with worry and despair in their voices, they all described how much the Lebanese people have suffered and how accustomed they have become to adapting to worsening conditions. They saw the likelihood for change, let alone rebellion, as very low indeed. You know, the problem with the Lebanese is they adapt. Things get worse and you think people will fight a little bit, they go on protest a little bit, then they adapt. But now it reached a point where I think it's difficult for anyone to adapt because there is nothing. The future of Lebanon, I don't know. Like, honestly, I don't know. I think they've been through a lot. They will be through a lot more. Um, I don't think it'll end anytime soon. So it seems that the situation in Lebanon is bleaker than ever before. And those parties which spurred my research and gave hope to millions of Lebanese have, at least for now, disappeared from the playing field. For a country that recently made international headlines when its government couldn't even agree in which time zone the country sits, it seems ironic to end this podcast saying that only time will tell what happens next in Lebanon. Lastly, I'd like to extend my thanks to Dania, Ibrahim, Mona, Basel, Mere and Ali. It was a pleasure and a privilege to interview them. Thank you.